Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Smith Licks Experience. I'm your host, Eric Smith, and uh, we're continuing our journey into the world of James Bond. But before we begin, uh, I'm proud to announce that the Smith Licks Experience is officially international. Uh, that's right. Uh, we have a listener from Australia uh, who's been tuning in um, when they showed up on the feed. So... If you know who you are, we'd love to hear from you, how you heard about us, that sort of thing, you know. So, I'd love to get your uh, feedback and everything here, smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. be happy to hear from you. And again, uh, that goes for everyone. If you want to leave some feedback, uh, talk about the show, you have any questions, stuff, anything involving the past episodes, uh, be happy to respond. Send me an email. Again, it's smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. I'll read your emails here on the show on the next episode. So. Uh, but yes, we continue our journey into James Bond. And next up is For Your Eyes Only. So yeah, this was the uh, eighth book, actually, and the twelfth film uh, in the franchise. So we're now entering the eighties. Disco's officially dead. John Hinckley tried to impress Jodie Foster by attempting and failing to assassinate President Ronald Reagan, and Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female U.S. Supreme Court justice. And producers Cubby Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson were looking to seriously revamp the Bond franchise. Now, while Moonraker was a box office blockbuster and the most profitable Bond film to date, critics and fans had otherwise to say heavily criticizing the overuse of gadgets, bad puns, and too much leaning towards comedic and campy effect. It was time to go back to basics, and there was more than one reason why they had to do that. Now, while For Your Eyes Only is the eighth book in the Ian bon Fleming's Bond series, it's actually a collection of James Bond's short stories. This film combines two of the short stories, For Your Eyes Only and Rosico, as well as pulling elements and scenes from other Fleming Bond novels. Fleming had originally written For Your Eyes Only for an episode of a canceled James Bond TV series for CBS in 1958. Now, as I mentioned in the past couple episodes, For Your Eyes Only was originally supposed to succeed The Spy Who Loved Me, but due to the massive success of Star Wars in 1977, producers opted to make Moonraker instead to capitalize on it. Even though, as it was just mentioned Moonraker was a huge hit. It was also very expensive to make due to the extensive use of special effects. On top of that, United Artists suffered a major blow after the 1980 Michael Cimino directed Western epic Heaven's Gate bombed and became a massive flop. Uh, they lost a lot of money on that. You throw in the 1980s recession into the mix, and this would prompt UA to lower the budget for Four Your Eyes Only. 
Now, the producers had wanted to see about bringing back Bond alums Terrence Young, Guy Hamilton, Lewis Gilbert, or Peter Hunt to return and direct. However, they could not afford them again, given that lower budget. They really had to scrap. So the producers promoted film editor John Glenn to director, and he would continue with that role for a total of five Bond films, the most of any director in the franchise. John Glenn was born in 1932 in England. His first foray into the filmmaking industry was as a messenger boy in 1945. By the late 40s, he was working in the visual and sound editorial departments of Shepperton Studios for Alexander Kor to produce films such as the 1949 noir classic The Third Man, starring Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, and the 1950 war film The Wooden Horse. He eventually moved up the ranks and made his editorial debut in the 1961 documentary series Chemistry for Six Forms, and eventually made his directorial debut on the 1968 TV series Man in a Suitcase, directing one episode. 1969, he took over editing duties on Honor Majesty's Secret Service as then-Bond editor Peter Hunt focused on directorial duties for that film. He would continue to be an editor in the Bond film, starting with 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, and continued with 1979's Moonraker. He's also responsible for that pigeon double take I crapped on in my last episode during the Bondola sequence in St. Mark's Square. So uh, if you want to blame anyone, <laughs> blame John Glenn. Now, Glenn is basically the 80s Bond director, as many know him, as all five films he directed were all in the 80s. Other Notable films that Glenn edited was the 1978 war film The Wild Geese, starring Bond alum Roger Moore, and the 1978 superhero film Superman. Uh, after directing his final Bond film, 1989's License to Kill, he kept his focus on directing, and fortunately, the ones that the most notable for are not good. Uh, that includes the 1992 dud-actioner Aces Iron Eagle 3, starring Louis Gossett Jr., and the 1992 historical epic bomb Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, featuring forgettable performances by Marlon Brando and Tom Selleck. You want an unintentional laugh? Watch that movie. For the Bond films, Glenn opted for a more harder-edged directorial style with less emphasis on gadgets and large action sequences and rather emphasized more intention, plot, and characters. Now, Ken Adam was unable to return as he was busy working on the 1981 musical Pennies from Heaven, starring Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters. Uh, Peter Lamont, who had been in the art department since Goldfinger, was promoted to production designer. Lamont followed a suggestion from Glenn in creating more realistic scenery and locations rather than the elaborate set pieces for which the series has been known. Now, for the script, Tom Mankiewicz had written a storyline and Christopher Woods submitted a first draft in January 1978, again, as that at that time, for Your Eyes Only was still going to succeed The Spy Who Loved Me. However, their screenplay was rejected. Uh, veteran Bond screenwriter Richard Maybaum was brought in and scripted the film with assistance from producer Michael T. Wilson. Uh, Wilson stated that the writing process was more of a committee and the ideas from stories could have come from anyone. The committee would often be comprised of uh, his father-in-law, producer Cubby Broccoli, uh, Maybaum himself, Wilson, and then several stunt coordinators. Now, Roger Moore returned as Bond for the fifth time at this point. Moore was on a film-by-film -film contract with Ian that started with Moonraker in 1979. However, at the age of 53, by the time filming began, his age was becoming a concern, and it was uncertain Moore would return. 
Now, to prepare for this possibility, the producers did look at other potential actors and even screen-tested a few on the slide just in case. Among those considered were British actor Lewis Collins, best known for his role in the British TV series The Professionals, uh, British actor Ian Ogilvie, who is best known for replacing Moore as Simon Templar in the short-lived continuation series Return of the Saint, uh, British actor Michael Billington, who was second in line to be Bond in 1974 prior to filming The Man with the Golden Gun, and who played Triple X's ill-fated lover Sergei Borzov in 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Billington did a screen test for the film uh, as well. I believe that's on a, a special feature of the uh, special edition DVD that they released some years ago. Uh, future Bond, Timothy Dalton, was strongly considered, but Dalton declined as he disliked the direction the series was taking at the time. He probably didn't get his hands on this script, otherwise I think he would have reconsidered because this one was a little bit more grounded than the past entries. Uh, he also didn't think they were, they were seriously looking for a new 007 and explained that his idea of Bond was different. Uh, when Moore discovered that Broccoli was screen-testing actors without his knowledge, he actually announced in the Daily Mail that he would not return to play Bond. However, Broccoli managed to convince him to return once more. Now, for the role of Bond woman Melina Havelock, producers considered Italian actress Ornella Muti, who is probably best known to American audiences for playing Princess Aura in the 1980s sci-fi fantasy adventure Flash Gordon. But she turned down the role because her costume designer, Wayne Finkelman, wasn't hired for the project. Man, what a diva. United Artists publicist Jerry Giroux suggested French actress Carol Bouquet, and after Glenn and Broccoli star in the 1977 French comedy drama C'est Obscure Objet de Désir, or That Obscure Object of Desire, they traveled to Rome to offer the role to her, which, of course, she accepted. Bouquet, who was born in 1957, is more well-known in European cinema. Outside of her role in Four Your Eyes Only, American audiences that watch the hit HBO comedy drama Sex and the City may recognize her as Juliet in the final season. Uh, Bouquet was also the face of Chanel Number no. 5 from 1986 to 1997. I want a Cesar award for Best Actress for her role in Belle Portois, or Too Beautiful for You. Now for the role of millionaire Aristotle Christados, the producers thought of English actor Julian Glover. Glover, in the beginning of the Bond franchise, was considered to play 007, but the producers felt he was too young. By the time Four Your Eyes Only rolled around, they felt he was too old for the role, despite being younger than Moore at 43 at the time of filming. Uh, however, they offered him the role of the scrupulous Christados, and he graciously accepted. Glover was born in 1935. He got his start in acting as, in the early 50s on stage and on British TV. Became a regular of British TV in the 60s and 70s, appearing in such popular shows like The Avengers, The Saint, Strange Report, Doctor Who, and Blake Seven. He made his feature film debut in the 1963 British comedy Tom Jones, starring Albert Finney. Aside from his role as a 007 villain, he's also best known for playing General Maximilian Veers in the 1980 sci-fi epic The Empire Strikes Back, opposite Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher. Uh, and he also voiced his Empire character in the 2012 animated short Lego Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Out. Uh, he's also known, best known for playing the millionaire Nazi sympathizer Walter Donovan in the 1989 action-adventure Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, opposite Harrison Ford and Bond alum Sean Connery. There's quite a lot of Bond alums in that one. We'll get to that later. And King Gustav in the 1991 comedy King Ralph, opposite John Goodman. Uh, he also voiced the giant spider Aragog in the 2002 fantasy film Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and would be best known to Game of Thrones fans for playing Grand Meister Pycelle throughout the show's run. 
Now, for the role of the reformed smuggler Milos Colombo, Broccoli's wife Dana suggested renowned Israeli actor-singer Chaim Topol, who is usually just billed as Topol. Aside from his role here, Topol is best known for playing Tevi in the 1971 musical Fiddler on the Roof, which he was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar and won the Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy Golden Globe. He had also portrayed Tevi on stage throughout his career, performing the role more than 3,500 times between 1967 and 2009. He's also the founder of Variety Israel, an organization serving children with special needs, as well as the Jordan River Village, a year-round camp for Arab and Jewish children with life-threatening illnesses. Uh, Topol was born in Tel Aviv in 1935 in what was then the Mandatory Palestine. Uh, Topol is also best known for starring in the 1975 biopic Galileo and appearing in the 1980 sci-fi adventure Flash Gordon opposite Sam Jones, Max von Sydow, and future Bond Timothy Dalton. Now for the role of ice skating prodigy B.B. Dahl, the producers cast real-life skater Lynn Holly Johnson. Johnson was an accomplished skater, finishing second at the novice level of the 1974 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. However, she gave up professional skating in 1977 and joined the Ice Capades uh, and before deciding to pursue an acting career. She made her film debut, playing an ice skater no less, in the 1978 romantic sports drama Ice Castles, upon which she was nominated for a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year, uh, actress for her performance. Aside from her role here, she's also known for starring in the 1980 Disney, that's right, Disney supernatural horror film The Watcher in the Woods. Quite a different direction Disney would take back then, which also starred Betty Davis, Carol Baker, Kyle Richards, and David McCallum. Uh, and she also starred in the 1984 American sex comedy, Where the Boys Are 84. Uh, now, her film career never really took off, although she did make appearances in such renowned TV shows such as Chips, Trapper John M.D., and MacGyver. She did officially retire from acting in 1996. Now, for the role of the spectacled assassin Emile Locke, the producers cast British actor Michael Gothard. Aside from his role, Gothard is also best known for his appearances in the 1973 action comedy The Three Musketeers and its 1974 sequel The Four Musketeers, as well as Glenn's 1992 bomb Christopher Columbus The Discovery. Walter Gotell reprises his role as General Anatoly Gogol for the third consecutive time. And as usual, Lois Maxwell and Desmond Llewellyn reprise their roles as Money Penny and Q, respectively. As mentioned in my last episode, Bernard Lee unfortunately passed away after a battle with stomach cancer in early 1981 before he could film the scenes for this movie. Now, out of respect for his passing, they decided not to immediately recast the character, so this is the only official Bond film that M is not in. Now, the title song is sung by Scottish pop singer Sheena Easton. Uh, originally, the pop band Blondie was approached to record the theme. They produced their own song, and it turned it into the producers, but they rejected it as they liked the Bill Conti song uh, that was originally written, and Blondie refused to record that one. Now, they would eventually release their song on the 1982 album The Hunter, uh, and actually have a clip of it here, so let's take a listen real quick. Look over my shoulder, I'm trying to read. Don't forget my privacy. We both have our orders and a trick up the sleeve. There's no use pretending you're asleep. The sun 
Wow. I mean, <laughs> that's actually really good. I've never heard that song before. I, I'm no Blondie. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's actually incredible. I actually kind of like that one better than the Sheen Easter version, though, with all due respect to Easton. You know, we'll, I'll talk more about what I think of that song in a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's good. The Sheen Easton version, the one that's used in the movie, is, is good. But uh, this one, uh, but I can see why... The producers rejected it. It's a little too poppy, you know. It's too much pop. It, it you know, it, it it still it wouldn't gel well with a Bond film. This is this would be something that would more fall in line of like a spoof style Bond, you know, uh, you know, kind of like how it Casino Royale's was. So they got Burt Bacharach, you know, with that, and Herb Alpert with the poppy, you know, music and everything like there. So it was this this that would be more in line with something that's or more of like a uh, um, like a spy comedy if you will that this one you know I feel like it would kind of because uh, it's too lighthearted. you know the, the Bond film especially For Your Eyes Only is more grounded it's a little bit more serious there's still some good humor but it, they kind of go back to the basics with the Bond franchise um, so yeah I can see I, I love this song actually just hearing that little bit I actually kind of want to hear the whole thing um, but I can see again, see why the producers rejected it. Uh, I think Blondie should have taken them up on their offer to record the one that's used in the movie. They could have crafted that in their own, made it a little bit more peppy and everything like that, uh, and uh, really knocked it out of the park. But hey, you know, it's, you know, wasn't in the wasn't in the cards, and the, and we got Sheen Easter's version, which is still pretty good. Now Easton. Uh, garnered she garnered attention after competing in the first British musical reality TV series, The Big Time Pop Singer. Due to her appearance, she eventually signed a deal with EMI Records. Now she's best known for her songs Modern Girl and her hit song Morning Train Nine to Five, which was originally titled Nine to Five in the UK, but they changed it for its U US release to avoid confusion with the hit Dolly Parton song. Morning Train reached number one in the U.S., topping the Billboard Hot 100 and Billboard Adult Contemporary charts. Uh, Modern Girl was eventually released in the U.S. and reached the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. Eason has been nominated for the Grammy six times and won twice for Best New Artist in 1982 and Best Mexican-American Performance in 1985 for her duet with Mexican singer Luis Miguel on the 1984 single Mi Gustas Tal Como Eres. Now, to date, she's the only artist in Billboard history to have a top five hit in each of their primary singles charts, Morning Train and Pop and Adult Contemporary. We've got Tonight with Kenny Rogers and Country and Adult Contemporary and Sugar Walls and R&B and Dance. Now, if uh, there's anyone that could probably do it, it'd probably be someone like Taylor Swift or Adele that would match that. <laughs> so, but right now she's the only one to uh, achieve that. Now, John Barry was unable to compose this film as he once again was unable to work in the UK for tax reasons. Now, to get a better understanding, I've mentioned that a few times throughout the past couple episodes, 
that he couldn't work for tax reasons in the UK. To get a better understanding of what I mean by that, in the 1970s till sometime in the 80s, uh, Barry and other high-earning Britons had become a tax exile in which they leave the country to avoid the payment of income tax or other taxes, especially the high tax rates incorporated by the UK during that time. So he couldn't work in the UK because he'd get taxed for it, and he you know, was kind of against that, I suppose. So the producers hired acclaimed American composer Bill Conti at the recommendation of Barry. Uh, Conti was born in 1942 in Providence, Rhode Island. He graduated from LSU's School of Music and garnered a master's with honors at Juilliard School of Music. Conti got his professional career going in 1971 by orchestrating pop recordings by Italian artists, as well as being a ghostwriter of the scores for Spaghetti Westerns. Now, his big break came in 1976 when United Artists hired to compose the music for a small sports drama called Rocky. His song, Gonna Fly Now, which was featured over the training montage, topped the Billboard singles charts in 1977 and earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song, which he lost out to Evergreen from A Star Is Born. Conti would go on to score four of the Rocky sequels, 1979's Rocky II, 1982's Rocky III, 1990's Rocky V, and 2006's Rocky Balboa. In 1983, he scored the historical drama The Right Stuff, and won the Oscar for Best Original Score. Other notable scores that he contributed were for the 1980 comedy Private Benjamin, the 1981 Dan Aykroyd-John Belushi comedy Neighbors, uh, the 1984 martial arts drama The Karate Kid, the 1986 sequel The Kid Part Two, uh, the 1986 thriller FX, 1987 fantasy film Masters of the Universe, 1987 comedy drama Broadcast News, the 1989 martial arts sequel The Karate Kid Part Three. Uh, the 1991 sports comedy, Necessary Roughness. Uh, the 1993 sports comedy, Rookie of the Year. The 1996 Bond-style spoof film, Spy Hard. The 1998 spoof film, Wrongfully Accused. And the 1999 heist film, The Thomas Crown Affair, starring future Bond, Pierce Brosnan. Now, production took place on location in the North Sea, Corfu, Greece, Meteora, Greece, uh, Cortina d'Ampezzo, Italy, and in the UK, as new conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher made some significant tax cuts, thus allowing them to shoot in and around Britain again. Uh, interiors were shot at Pinewood Studios. So let's take a look at the plot. Now we open on a cemetery. Uh, James Bond walks up to a grave and sets down a bouquet of flowers next to it. The grave belongs to his late wife, Tracy. Again, connecting all the previous films. Uh, with the Moore dynasty. Uh, as he pays his respects, a priest runs up to him and says his office called. They'll be sending a helicopter to pick him up as it's some sort of emergency. Bond says it usually is. So Bond gets in a helicopter and takes off. We then see a bald man in a gray suit sitting in a wheelchair, and we only see the back of him. Blofeld? Is that you? Oh, I'm sorry, we can't use that name. Uh, he who must not be named? No, no, that's already taken. Ah, oh, hell. We know it's supposed to be. Mr. Clean. So the bald man starts flipping switches on a console attached to his wheelchair as his Persian cat sits in his lap. He presses a button, and the helicopter pilot gets electrocuted to death. Bond tries to get up to the front of the cockpit, but he can't get past the glass partition. A mysterious voice comes on the intercon telling Bond, Good afternoon, and cackling. 
he tells Bond not to concern himself with the pilot as he is one of his less useful people. Says that Bond is now flying remote control airways as he controls the chopper. The chopper swoops around buildings and under bridges. Bond manages to open the door and climb outside. And the bald man tells Bond to think twice as it's a long way down. He swoops the chopper again, causing Bond to lose his footing. Bond hangs onto the skid for dear life. As the helicopter continues flying, the man cackles at the sight. Bond climbs back up and opens the cockpit, dropping the dead gunal. The man jokes that Bond has no respect for the dead. Bond climbs in and the man tells Bond goodbye, hoping he had a pleasant fright. Okay, Punzer Bond's department. As he cackles like an idiot, he navigates the chopper into an abandoned car park, the helicopter barely fitting in. The man says that his picture of him is fading, but the end isn't far away. Bond finds the control wire and yanks it out. Bond regains control of the helicopter and takes off after the man. Frustrated, the man tries taking off on his motorized wheelchair. Bond swoops down and picks him up with the skid. The man freaks and screams for Bond, saying, They can make a deal! He tells Bond he can get him a delicatessen in stainless steel. <laughs> what? Yeah. Nice bargain there, Ernie. Uh, yes, that's always been Bond's dream, to run a deli. It would be called Double O Heaven. No, 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 wait. Bond's Butchery and Delicatessen. No, no, wait. JB Deli. Bond reaches out the window and pats him on the end, telling him to keep his hair on. The man screams for Bond to put him down. Bond says, oh, you want to get off? He hovers over to a smokestack and drops the man down it, uh, his screams of Bond's name echoing before we hear a crash. This whole sequence is really fun. It was reportedly just a setup as a tongue-in-cheek moment that was to make a statement saying they don't need Blofeld as a villain to make a successful Bond movie. Um, as a lot of critiques have been saying that, you know, nothing can match like the villainy of Blofeld in the past films, which is somewhat true. But uh, uh, originally, they had planned on Blofeld making an appearance here, but again, due to, like, copyright concerns and uh, legal uh, reasons they couldn't actually use the name. So the, the look and the style, the cat is there, everything, but you never hear Blofeld's name. Uh, and he doesn't even show up in the credits. I think it's just like a question mark or something, if I'm not mistaken. So anyway, the camera zooms in on the opening stack as we transition to the opening credits. And the theme song is sung by Sheena Easton and even features her, along with Roger Moore in it. Uh, director John Glenn and uh, composer Bill Conti liked Easton's look so much they offered to put her in the credits as well, making her the first singer of the theme song to show up in the opening credits. And I'm probably the only one, because I don't remember if I recall. I might be mistaken. But I don't believe I remember seeing any other of the singers show up and there. You gotta feel the song itself is pretty good, but it feels like it would be suited better in a romantic film or maybe a TV sitcom opening. It's it's a middle-of-the-road theme song. It's it's not good. It's, it, I mean, it's not great. It's not bad. It's just, it's just like one of those that's kind of stuck in the middle there. Now, we also get Maurice Bender's incredible opening credits, which features women running in water and beautiful shots of glistening waters while Sheena sings it up. So we then cut to a fishing trawler. A man in a sweater opens up a door and heads down into the boat. He heads it to a hold and opens another door. 
After he closes it, the door slides inward, being replaced by Sachs. Uh, the man enters a secret compartment. The ship is the front for British intelligence. The man approaches another and says it's his watch. Each apply a key to a chain, and the man attaches it to his hand and sits in the other guy's place. He watches over a device marked ATAC, A-T-A-C. He's handed a document, and he feeds it off a computer bank. Suddenly, something shows up on radar, and the alarm goes off. They say an unidentified object is moving, closing fast. Fishermen outside reel in their nets, having snagged an old underwater mine. Hey, the catch of the day. So as it hits the side of the boat, it explodes. Honestly, why did they keep trying to haul it up? I mean, you could clearly see that what it was while it was still in the water. So why try pulling it out of the water? That's where the real damage happened. They could just cut the line and let it go. So... The intelligence officers inside scramble. A commander informs the man watching the attack to detonate it, but before he could do so, he gets knocked back from another explosion. The water starts gushing in as he tries, in vain, to hit the detonator switch. The sounds of scream are heard as the ship goes down. So then we move to Defense Minister Frederick Gray's office. Um, at his office, two men enter. They inform him that their surveillance ship went down, naming it the St. George's. Uh, the second man says they got a routine message yesterday, but then nothing and discovered floating debris this morning. So you immediately draw the conclusion that it sank. Uh, didn't even set up a search and rescue. Gray asks how deep the water is there. The man says not deep enough. What the heck does that mean? If it's not deep enough, that means it would be easy for them to be located. So then we cut to General Gogol's office at KGB headquarters. He's on the phone with someone discussing the sinking of St. George's. He says that they have a good chance of recovering the A-Tank. He adds that they won't be directly involved, but that should it come to the Marlet, they wouldn't pass up an amazing opportunity. He adds that he's already contacted their usual friend in Greece. We then see a beautiful woman in a single-engine seaplane as she puts makeup on. Plan sees a boat and circles around to land. A man inside sets his parrot down and puts some documents away in a safe, giving his parrot a nut. Although the parrot keeps asking for a kiss. And heads out to greet his daughter. The woman is Melina Havelock, and her parents uh, are underwater archaeologists. Melina gets out and is greeted warmly. She asks why they left Crete so suddenly. Her dad says he wanted to come back and continue working on the temple. She gives her parents gifts and has pistachios for Max, the parrot. As she goes in to give them to him, the plane that dropped Melina off circles around again. They wave as it dives closer. They realize something's wrong when suddenly the pirate opens fire with a high-powered machine gun that's lowered from the belly of the plane. He hits her parents in a hailstorm of bullets and kills them. Melina ducks from the gunfire then runs to her parents' side. A look of revenge enters the once soft eyes. And MI6, Moneypenny opens up a filing cabinet and a mirror pops out. Finally, after all these years, the question of where Moneypenny keeps her mirror have been answered. She applies lipstick, and upon hearing someone enter, quickly closes it. Gotta hide the mirror, otherwise everyone is going to be wanting to use it. It's Bond, carrying a white rose, who calls Money Penny a feast for my eyes. She quips back, well, what about the rest of you? Bond says he was getting around to that as he kisses her on the cheek. Now, the byplay between Bond and Money Penny has certainly lost its luster, and you can see here why they've left it out over the last few films. It almost looks like Bond's hitting on his mom or his grandma at this point because, I mean, Moneypenny is really coming along in age, you know. So she then quickly tells Bond that he better hurry 
inside as M is on leave and that the defense minister has arrived with the chief of staff and wants to see him right away. Juan says he'll be right back, and Monty says she can't wait. She then asks if he's forgetting something. Bond looks at the rose and says, as M is away, we're tossing it to Money Penny and heading in. So wait a minute, you got a rose for M? Or is that just some lame excuse? Oh, Bond. Bond heads inside and greets Minister Gray and Chief of Staff Tanner. Gray doesn't bother greeting him. How rude. And instead immediately asks Bond if he knows about their ATAC. Don't ask him that. He lives for those kind of questions. Bond, of course, launches into one of those know-it-all tangents, stating that the ATAC stands for Automatic Targeting Attack Communicator, that he uses an ultra-low-frequency transmitter to order submarines to launch ballistic missiles. Tanner then informs Bond that their spy ship, the St. George's, sank in the Ionian Sea, and that she was equipped with the ATAC. He adds that if the transmitter winds up in the wrong hands, it would render their entire fleet useless. Bond says that they could counterattack. Tanner says it's worse. They could order our own submarines to attack our own cities. Bond asks if a salvage operation has gone underway. Gray says an official investigation is out of the question as it's off the coast of Albania. Ah, you would have been fine, and nobody knows who Albania is anyway. Tanner adds that they hired marine archaeologist Sir Timothy Havelock, but that him and his wife were assassinated by a Cuban assassin named Gonzalez, and that their daughter Melina was able to give a description. Tanner says the mission is being classified as Operation Undertow. Well, at least it makes more sense than Thunderball. His orders are to find Gonzalez and pressure him into finding out who hired him. We next see Bond driving a, down a beautiful winding road in the Greek countryside in his 1980 Lotus Esprit Turbo. He looks at a map and continues onward, passing by a mansion. Security camera monitors the area as a car pulls in. Bond parks and sneaks a peek as he spots a guard setting down his gun to pick up a woman. Bond uses his binoculars and spots women in bikinis, swimming, and lounging, and a tall man with glasses handing over a briefcase full of cash to Gonzalez. Bond turns to leave, but two men jump from the trees. Have they been up there the whole time? So one grabs Bond and holds his arms while another takes out his gun. Now during this sequence, there's a song that plays, presumably over the radio. It's kind of heard faintly in the background while they're playing around the pool and uh, during the uh, fight when... Those two guys uh, attack Bond. It, it was actually featured on one of the as one of the um, bonus songs for the 50th anniversary edition of the CD, uh, the music of Bond, James Bond, uh, which features all the Bond theme songs uh, up to that point, and then the bonus disc included other songs and bits from each of the Bond films, uh, either background songs, alternate songs, that sort of thing. Uh, it's actually pretty cool can uh, find yourself getting your hands on a copy uh definitely definitely check it out uh but let's take a listen to this song real quick
like I said, very catchy. Very catchy. I, I like it. I like it a lot. So inside the mansion walls, uh, they, the goons bring Bond to Gonzalez. Gonzalez recognizes the gun as a Walter PPK. He adds that it's standard issue British Secret Service. License to kill or be killed. He then instructs his men to take him away. As they escort Bond away, someone else watches from the trees. Gonzalez goes to dive in the pool, but a whip sound is here that... And Gonzalez flops into the pool. Everyone laughs and giggles like a bunch of idiots until they see the blood. A woman screams and the man in glasses looks over. Gonzalez's body floats to the top, a crossbow bolt jutting out of his back. Bond instantly reacts and punches the men next to him. Another guy attacks, and Bond grabs a table umbrella and knocks the goon into the pool. Another man goes to get up, but the man in glasses motions for him to stop. Bond then smacks another guy across the face with the umbrella and leaps over the wall. He opens the umbrella and floats down. <laughs> okay. Bond, the man that defies physics. Bond runs through the brush where another man approaches to attack, but he gets hit with a bolt too. Bond looks over and the person stands up, removing their camouflage face covering. It's Melina Havelock. Bond says whoever she is, she outstayed her welcome. He grabs her and they run off. The men find Bond's esprit and attempt to break into it. Now there's a funny blink and miss sight gag here on a close-up of the goon trying to open the door. You can see on the window is a sticker that reads, Burglar Protected. The goon then smashes the window and the esprit blows up. Bond and Melina, who just arrived, witness the explosion. Bond tosses the keys and tells Melina he hopes she has a car. They run through the woods and reach Melina's car. It's a Citroen 2CV. Uh, it's funny, the, the thrilling score slowly wanders away after the car is shown like air being let out of a balloon. So they get in and take off. Uh, Bond asks who she is, and her dry response is, he killed my parents. Well, that's not what he asked. Bond realizes she's talking about the Havelocks and says he's sorry. She then looks at him and gives slight shrug without showing any emotion. It's like saying, eh, it happens, or, eh, what can you do? So a couple goons follow in a 1980 Peugeot 504. Bond asks how she found Gonzalez. She said through a detective agency. The goons quickly approach, and Bond says they're being out-horsepowered. They race down the narrow streets. Bond excuses himself and grabs the wheel, steering the car toward a bag of cement. It explodes, and dust goes flying everywhere, creating a makeshift smokescreen. One car nearly knocks a man down off his ladder. Bond sees a split coming with him. One side going downhill and a bus approaching straight ahead. Bound shouts for her to take the low road, but Melina doesn't react in time, and she goes and she turns the car just as it goes over the edge, causing the Citroen to tip over. Not that low, Bond quips. The bus bl blocks the goons who angrily honk their horn. Well, yeah, that'll show them. So Bond and Melina flip their car back upright, and Bond offers to drive. They get some locals to help them push start it, just as a goon fires a gun, causing the bus to back up so they can continue pursuit. Bond and Melina take a winding road down a hillside, but the goons are closing in. One goon pulls up next to Bond, and they start smashing cars. The goon knocks the Citroen off the road, and it rolls down the hill. It lands on its wheels, all banged up, but starts up no problem. Melina spots the goons approaching and says the strangest thing. She says, go backwards, forwards, quickly. Well, that doesn't make sense. Which is it? Backwards or forwards? Bond goes, hmm. <laughs> Our feelings exactly, Bond. 
and Melina throttles it into reverse. So Bond takes off backwards and maneuvers around a truck before performing a reverse 180. The battered Citroen carries on as more goons approach. Two cars pull up on either side of Bond and Melina. One goes to smash them, but Bond slams on the brakes. The car careens over, missing them, and rolls down the hill where they land on the roof on the road below. Bond approaches the flip car, blocking the road, and turns off-road. The other goon hits the flip car from one side, causing it to spin as they pass. Bond passes the goon, still chasing, and continues off the beaten path, crashing through an olive grove. I love a drive in the country, don't you? Bond jokes as Melina laughs. Her laughing seems almost like it was an outtake that they never actually took out, you know, because uh, she's been so serious up to this point, and all of a sudden we see her, you know, laughing and having fun almost. Uh, they continue down and ramp over a goon car, the rear wheel skimming over the roof. They land and continue driving downhill. The goon car spots a truck coming up the road, and they swerve to get out of the way. Uh, going off, three, two, one. The goon car spots a truck coming up the road, and they swerve to get out of the way, going off a cliff and crashing into an olive tree, with olives raining down on the netting to the disgust of the pickers. Bond and Melina finally make it to the bottom of the hill, and Bond formally introduces himself. Bond. James Bond. So later that night, Bond and Melina are in a hotel room. Bond gets off the phone and says there's a flight leaving at 11. He adds that it should be safe now. He then asks if she's all right. As she packs her bags, she says she's fine. Bond then asks if she's going back to her father's ship. She says yes to continue his work. She then adds that the business isn't finished. Bond asks what business. She says of killing the man who paid Gonzalez. Bond tells Melina that the Chinese have a saying. Before setting out on revenge, you first dig two graves. She says she doesn't expect him to understand as he's British and she's half Greek and she leaves. That's sort of bigoted. So back at MI6, Bond has a debriefing with Tanner and Gray. Tanner isn't happy and chews out Bond, telling him that he was meant to question Gonzalez, not let Miss Havelock perforate him. I just love how he uses the word perforate there. Uh, Bond agrees. Gray says they'll have to inform the Prime Minister that Operation Undertow is dead. In the water? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Too soon? Bond then has Gray take a closer look at his report, highlighting that he wrote down that he saw someone paying off Gonzalez. Bond says he's assuming the payoff was for the Havelock's murder, Then there's still a glimmer of hope. Three, two, one. Bond says that assuming the payoff was for the Havelock's murder, then there's still a glimmer of hope. Gray says he doesn't understand. See, Gray, that's why you'll never be M. Bond says if they can identify the man, kind of cuts him off and says they should use the identigraph. Gray agrees, Although he makes a sound that indicates he's either doing an imitation of Frankenstein's monster, or he stubbed his toe. Bond acknowledges. Tanner then tells Bond to get cracking, and Gray makes that same sound again. I mean, did, did he suddenly lose the ability to speak? Actually, if you look closely, given the head movement and the second grunt was an over-the-shoulder shot, I want to guess that the first grunt was an alternate shot of the second grunt, or vice versa. So Bond enters Q branch and greets Q. I've mentioned before that Q's gadgets are getting more and more gruesome, but damn! Bond says, that will come in handy. Get it? Handy? Like his hand? Crushing the skull? Ah, never mind. Q asks what Bond is doing there, and Bond says he needs to use the identigraph. 
I head over to the section of the room as another scientist pours water on an umbrella. The umbrella snaps shut over a dummy, sharp blades extending out of the corners of the umbrella. Stinging in the rain, Von quips. That's not funny, 007, Q scolds. You tell him, Q. Man, the movie's becoming self-aware of how bad Bond's puns are becoming. Q supposes that Bond doesn't find it funny in the field, and Bond agrees. Q presses a keypad, which plays the, the first few notes to uh, Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, the theme song from uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, to open the uh, doors to the identigraph room. Q waits for the door to open, but it doesn't. Bond presses two more keys, and the door opens. Q says that the 3D identigraph is still in the experimental stage. Bond grabs a large reel of what appears to be film, I guess, and places it in the machine. Q says that once they get a composite of the man, they can match it by patching it into the files of the Surette, Interpol, CIA, the Mossad, and the West German police. Bond says, adding in an annoyed tone that Q has told him five times already. Q sits down at the computer and Bond sits at a monitor. Q asks for a description so he can input it. Bond says he's a male, Caucasian, late 30s. Computer image of a male head appears on the screen. Hair fine, light brown. We see hair appear on the image. Bond has to pot it in the middle. Q does. Uh, then they focus on the eyes. Bond says to make them a little smaller, with the blue, with a little gray. Then they move to the nose. A side profile of the image is shown. Suddenly the nose grows long, like Cyrano de Bergerac. No, it's not a banana, Q, Bond says. Q apologizes and fixes it. Then they move on to the lips. Q adjusts the lips on the screen, and they look all tiny and pursed. Bond glares at Q, and Q apologizes again. They fix the lips to Bond's specifications. Q's assistant comes with some tea. Q thanks her and says she can go, that he'll lock up. Bond says, we almost got it. Now all we need to do is add glasses. He says they're steel-rimmed and octagonal. Q adds the glasses and Bond says that's him. Q smiles and says he'll try and get a match. Moments later, a printer prints out a description and the profile of the man. Bond rings Tanner and says that the man we're looking for is named Emile Locke. Bond says he's an enforcer in the Brussels underworld. He adds that he's been convicted of several murders and escaped from Namor Prison by strangling his psychiatrist. Bond also reads that he has worked for drug syndicates in Marseille and Hong Kong and is now working for Greek smugglers. Uh, Bond says that the Italian Secret Service thinks he may be in Cortina. Tanner says they'll contact the man Ferrara and meet him there. Tanner then tells Bond not to muck it up again. Bond says he'll do his best. So we next see Bond driving his newly renovated red lotus through the beautiful snow-covered northern italian landscape bond pulls up to a hotel and checks in he starts running the water which emits this huge cloud of steam that's a lot of steam it's like the fires of mordor there it just billows up like a locomotive when bond enters the bathroom again he sees a hidden message on the steam-covered mirror it reads tafana 10 a.m we later see bond get off a ski lift and arrive at the top of a mountain Dressed in ski clothes, man in a hat and sunglasses follows him and approaches as they overlook the mountains. The man stands next to Bond and says, The snow this year is better at Innsbruck, Bond replies, but not at St. Moritz. The man introduces himself as Ferrara, and this is an indication that their little conversation was coded, of course. Um, and Bond introduces himself as Bond, James. The man smiles and says, His name is Luigi. Bond says that he assumes that London has briefed him. 
He has a, he has a reliable Greek contact here, an Anglophile. Does he assist them with the smuggling operation? Bond asks, what's he doing in Coltina? Ferrara starts getting suspicious, and he brings Bond to another part of the uh, lodge there. He spends a few months here. He's in shipping, insurance, oil exploration. Since he's very reliable, the British even gave him the King's Medal. The resistance fighting during the war. Bond asks if he can meet him, and Ferrara says he's, he'll set it up. Says he's waiting for us at the Olympic ice rink. We then see a beautiful young woman ice skating and a woman instructing her how to skate. A man with a goatee sits nearby in a winter coat. Ferrara approaches him and introduces him to Bond. The man introduces himself as Aristotle Christatos. Christatos waves to the young skater and tells him that that's his protege, that she's a sure winner in the next Olympics. Says that she's completely absorbed and skating but innocent in the ways of the world. He adds that the day she wins the gold medal will be the greatest day of his life. Up at a higher point on the balcony behind them, Locke stands there drinking coffee and watching over them. The skater and her coach approach, and Christados introduces the skater as B.B. Dahl and the coach as Jakoba Brink, who was once a champion skater herself. Bond says he's seen Miss Brink skate, but thinks that soon the world will see a new skater in Miss Dahl. And then Miss uh, Miss Brink says, "Well, that only if she will only happen if she works harder, much harder." BB whines and asks her uncle Ari if they can stop because she's pooped. I do declare that this is the first moment in a Bond film that the word "poop" is used. Cristado says that's for Miss Brink to decide. Miss Brink says that she must practice for another half hour. BB then asks her uncle if he can take her to the biathlon. Christados leans over and says that, you know, she knows he has to work this afternoon. She whispers in her ear, glancing at Bond, and Christados says that BB asked if you can escort her, Bond. He adds that he would be much more comfortable if she was with someone safe. He's a total stranger. You don't know. Hey, you don't know Bond's reputation on us. <laughs> so. Bond looks worried, but says he would be delighted. They sit down, and Christados asks how he can be of help. Bond shows him a picture of Emil Locke. Christados recognizes the man, saying he's Colombo's right-hand man. Ferrara adds that he's referring to Milos Colombo, uh, whose name came up in connection with a smuggling operation last year. Christados says that's the least of his offenses. He adds that he's also known for drugs, white slavery, contract murder, and in the Greek underworld, he is known as the Dove. He calls him a very sick joke. Christados says that they were once like brothers, but now he hates them. They fought together in the Greek resistance and against the communists, but that he took a different path. Bond thanks Christados for his time, and Christados says that he will give Ferrara any more information if he has it. Ferrara goes to extend his hand to shake Christados, but Christados ignores him for some reason. <laughs> Bond asks what Luigi thinks, asking if Colombo has the resources to mount this sort of operation. Ferrari says definitely that he runs a fleet of intercoastal freighters in the Aegean. Ferrara adds that he will ring his office in Milan, saying that they may have more on him. Locke watches as they walk away. As they approach the village, Bond recognizes someone enter a gun shop. We also see two mysterious strangers on motorcycles with spiked tires. Bond peeks in and overhears a shopkeeper selling her a crossbow. Melina says that's the one and it has to be delivered to her hotel. Bond ducks into a flower shop, accidentally bumping into someone, but closes the door quietly. The florist asks Bond if he can help her, and Bond hesitatingly asks if she can get him a dozen lilies. 
Melina is walking down the road when the two bikers race towards her. Bond leaps into action, and Melina leaps out of the way. And Bond grabs a wooden barricade, smacks one of the bikers with it, helps Melina up, and they take off. Bond asks, what telegram? Bond says, that's a telegram that you found the man and to meet you here today. Bond says, he didn't send a telegram. He has them get into a sleigh and instructs the driver to take off. Melina asks if we are leaving. And Bond says, not we, but you. Now, Melina says, you don't tell me what to do. Bond puts his hand as she goes to stand up, but Bond uh, tells her to hold it and keeps her in her seat. Melina looks at Bond and asks if he found the man who killed Gonzalez. It looks as if he's about to give the answer, but instead says, I'm working on it. Melina guesses that he found him here and instructs the driver to stop. Bond quickly tells the driver to keep going, and Melina says she's staying. Bond says, so you could put an arrow in his back? Bond says if she does that, they won't find out who or what is behind this. Melina said it was her parents that were killed, not yours. She then tells the driver to stop, but Bond tells him to keep going. The driver looks understandably confused. Bond has Melina look at him, and he calmly tells her that she was lucky once, but they're on to her now. The telegram, the motorcycle's back there, they prove it. Bond asks them that she let him handle this. She asks how he's involved. Bond says that all he can tell is that it's something of vital interest to both our countries. More important than my parents, she asks. Bond says that her father was part of it, and he thought it important enough to risk his life. He asked her to trust him and to go back to Triana until he finds out more. Once he finds out more, he'll come straight to Corfu and look for her. She agrees and says she will go back and wait, but not for long. She then smiles as the driver looks back and says, Ah, amore, amore. Bond enters the hotel room and sees that his room is ajar. He sees clothes on the floor. He pulls out his gun, but quickly puts it away when he spots a young woman walking out of the bathroom covered in a bathrobe. It's Bibi. Bond asks, don't they have showers at the rink? Yes. Then asks how she got in here. Bibi says that one of the porters is a fan and he'll do anything for me. She slips under the covers and takes off her tiles and adds that she'll do anything for him, meaning Bond. Bond says that she's in training. Bibi says that's a laugh and everyone knows it builds muscle tone. Uh, actually, I really enjoy this scene uh, just because it, it does kind of... Uh, paint Bond a little bit of a different light, showing that he does have morals. You know, he's not just a horn dog that will jump into the, into the sack with any woman. He, you know, he does recognize that BB is too young and does not even remotely take advantage of her, even though she comes on to him in a really weird way. Um, but, uh, you know, and you can see that and Moore does a fantastic job here. He's just like searching for reasons. It's like, it's like I've never been in this situation before. How do I you know, turn down a woman? So Bond then pokes his head out the door after she gets dressed and tells her the coast is clear. However, BB lunges at him and presses him against the door, kissing him. He pushes her away and asks if she ever comes up for air. He replies that well, that's why she's going to win the goal. Breath control. Bond says, well, she can't lose. At the event, Locke gets out of his car and walks toward it. Bond and BB are skiing. We some, see some skiers in the biathlon. BB points one of them out as Eric Kriegler. Bond asks if he's the East German champion. She says he's beautiful, and Bond tells her she's fickle. If you really look closely, uh, you can spot uh, actor Charles Dance uh, as one of Kriegler's uh, buddies there, uh, ski buddies. 
uh, Charles Dance is a uh, famous British actor. Uh, he played the villain in the Last Action Hero, and he's probably best known uh, for his role as Tywin Lannister on the HBO hit series uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, so it's, it's one of an early role for him here. So um, see if you can spot him. So then uh, uh, BB shouts Eric's name and waves, and he just glares at her with a scowl on his face. I guess he doesn't like whiny skaters either. BB wants to go watch them shoot, and they follow as Locke watches on. Kriegler hits all five of his targets with his rifle and takes off on the next leg. BB calls out for him and waves again, but he glares at her again. Ah, German mentality. Ein Gustenhufenschwein! How dare you look at me or say my name! So as he skates away, BB shouts that they'll have drinks at the finish line. Can't you take a hint, BB? I don't think he's interested in you. Bontens says he has to leave her now. BB gets upset and Bon says he has an appointment. She asks if he'll stop by the rink and say goodbye as they'll be going to Greece. Bon says he'll try, but if he doesn't, the one thing he'll say is to not grow up anymore. BB doesn't understand. Bon says the opposite sex would never survive it and skis off. Locke gets in his Mercedes and takes off. As Bond skis down to his rendezvous, a man starts following him. Each Eric Kriegler takes aim and shoots at Bond, nearly hitting him. Another shot causes Bond to lose control and he falls, taking refuge behind a fallen tree. Another shot rings out. Bond stands up as another shot rings out and knocks Bond's ski pole out of his hand. Bond takes off. Another shot misses. <laughs> Wow, for an expert marksman, he sure does suck here. I mean, I guess he can only hit targets if they're stationary. <laughs> so the two goons on the motorcycle show up to stir up more trouble and pull out pistols. They approach as Bond skis toward them. Their shots miss, of course, and Bond vaults, spinning midair, and a ski knocking over one of the goons. Bond leaps over more assailants, and he falls when he lands. He quickly gets back up and makes it back to town. Bond spots Locke getting out, and the two motorcycle goons pull up to talk to him. Bond looks over and sees Kriegler skiing toward him. Bond blends in with the crowd as Kriegler skis by. Locke seems to spot Bond in the crowd as Bond joins the others to take the lift up to the long jump ramp. Locke and the goons get on. Bond makes it to the top and sees the steep drop. Kriegler gets off a motorcycle and gets in the Mercedes, positioning himself to shoot Bond. Bond puts his skis on. The instructor questions something in Italian. That's an unclear as I don't speak Italian and there's no subtitles. But I believe he may be questioning Bond on the uh, skis he's using. Bond's using those traditional slalom style skis while the long jump skis are considerably longer. Um, Bond distracts him and takes off. Another goon comes out of the side and hits Bond in the ribs. They both kind of tussle about and they ski off the ramp and land where Bond hits the goon, knocking him down. Kriegler gets out of the car and aims, but looks startled when Bond vaults over him, knocking him down. Bond makes his way out of the area. Kriegler and the motorcycle goons chase after him. Bond outskis them, but one of the goons presses a button on his bike, firing machine guns mounted below the handlebars. They miss again, of course. And Bond continues down, making his way through a crowd. The goons shove the innocent bystanders out of the way and knock them down as they continue pursuit. Bond leaps off and lands on the balcony of a lodge, much to everyone's surprise. One of the goons follows, smashing up the balcony in the process, and we get to see, in his uh, third and final cameo, Man with Bottle. This time he's a skier, relaxing. 
So Bond skis for his life. He takes his pole and sticks it between two trees, clotheslining the goon. Kriegler continues chasing after him, and Bond makes his way onto the bobsled track, skiing behind the bobsled as he continues to get shot at. Bond then leaps out of the track and off a barn where he crashes. Kriegler makes his way but loses control and crashes into a pile of firewood. Bond gets his skis back on as Kriegler goes to take aim. However, he notices his rifle got bent. <laughs> now that's a quality made gun. What was it made out of? Licorice? And he throws it at Bond in anger. Bond skis away as Kriegler notices his bike is total as well and he picks that up, throwing it as well. <laughs> what a whiner. So later that night, Bond pulls up in his Lotus and heads into the skating rink. Luigi is with him, and Bond says he'll be back and to not touch any of the switches. So Luigi complies. In the rink, BB skates while Miss Brink coaches. Bond approaches BB, and she's excited to see him. Bond joins her on the ice and questions her boyfriend, Kriegler. She says he doesn't smoke, he only eats healthy foods, and he won't even talk to girls. Well, that may be a pretty good indication he's gay there, BB, and why he's not interested in talking to you. So, B.B. thinks Bond is jealous. Bond plays along and says he would like to know more about this competition. Bond asks that he's a defector from East Germany. Miss Brink then cuts her off and says it's time for her rubdown. B.B. quickly kisses Bond and hugs him, saying that she could eat him up alive. She says farewell, but not goodbye. Bond is walking off the rink as hockey players enter. The lights go out and more hockey players come out and start attacking Bond. They get some good licks in, but Bond manages to one-up them, and even taking one out with a Zamboni. Uh, in one of the film's slightly goofier moments, Bond knocks each hockey goon into the net, and the scoreboard buzzes, counting each one as a goal. So Bond then heads out to the Lotus and finds Luigi dead. A white dove pin is found clutched in his hand. Over in Greece, Melina gets off a boat and is surprised to see Bond greet her. They agree to go for a walk so they can talk. They joke and laugh, and she acts like a completely different person than she was in Cortina. She talks to him about her father. Bond asks if he left any notes, but Melina says she wouldn't know, as he ha she hasn't been able to find herself to go into a study. Bond says he's meeting a man at the casino that could give them a clue. At the casino, Bond is playing Baccarat with a portly gentleman. Bond wins again. A woman in a blue dress walks up, calling the man Bunky, and says he's perspiring. Bunky says, evening, Contessa. The man bets 500,000 euros, and the Countess mocks Bunky as he's only getting betting half and asks where his courage is. Bond says, courage is no match for an unfriendly shoe. Bunky then lays down a million pounds, and the Contessa congratulates him on uh, being brave. Christados approaches and watches Bond take Bunky to the cleaners. Uh, Bond and Christados head to their table and sit down. They order drinks in their dinner. Christodos is curious why Bond wants to know about Locke and guesses Bond is from the British Narcotics Board. He then wishes him luck as stopping Columbo will be difficult because he has powerful connections. He had to add that may he, it won't be enough to arrest him, but that he may even have to kill him and asks if he's willing to do that. Bond just asks where he is. Christodos motions to a table on the other side of the room says he's right there with the woman in blue with the Countess. And Bond recognizes her as the same Countess he met earlier. Christodos says that they ignore each other, but he wanted Bond to see him. He further adds that Colombo is a partner in the casino, but he won't do anything in his own place. Bond asks about the Countess. Christodos says her name is Liesel, and she's from Austria. Curious note, 
Countess Liesel here is played by Cassandra Harris, who was actually married to future Bond Pierce Brosnan at the time. Columbo is then shown getting mildly upset about something and walking away from the table. A waiter comes by with their food, and another swaps out the candle centerpiece for another. We see the candle being blown out. Columbo, in his office, removes the base of the centerpiece, revealing a tape recorder. He rewinds it and listens to part of the conversation between Bond and Christatos. Columbo then returns to his table and says something to Liesel. She stands up and angrily says he cannot speak to her that way. Columbo says he'll speak to her any way he pleases and demands she sit down. She smashes her. Three, two, one. She splashes her drink on him and he orders her to get out. She happily leaves. Bond says there's an opportunity there. Christodos thinks it's a trap and Bond says only if you play the odds. Sorry, Bond, that one doesn't make sense. Christodos says suit yourself and offers him his car. Bond catches up with Liesel and offers her a ride. She declines and Bond points out that it might be hard to get a cab at this hour and then offers again. She accepts. In the back of Christodos's car, Bond tells Liesel that he's a writer working on a novel about Greek smugglers and asking if she knows any. She declines. They flirt and then the car arrives to her place. She invites him inside for champagne and oysters. Ah, yes. Nothing says sex like the slimy taste of salty seawater in your mouth. After their bout of sex, Bond and Liesel relax by the fire. Bond notices her accent is slipping and he guesses she's from Manchester. She confesses and says, Liverpool. Bond adds that it was a good performance that she and Columbo put on at the casino and asks what he whispered to her. She says that you were a spy and to find more about you. They kiss and make love again. The next morning, Bond and Liesel are enjoying a nice stroll on the beach. She offers her car when Bond is ready to leave, and Bond says he was looking forward to breakfast. The romantic walk is interrupted when a dune buggy appears and chases after them. They manage to get away, and Bond fires his gun, hitting the tire and flipping the buggy. Another one appears, driven by Locke, and he chases after them. Liesel breaks away as Bond tries to shoot. Locke goes after Liesel, and she, for no apparent reason, stops. Come on, you could have ran towards the water and swam into, into the ocean or in any other direction. Why would you stop right in front of it? The buggy hits her, and she bounces off the windshield. Locke tries to run over Bond, but he leaps out of the way. A goon shows up and has a gun on Bond. He walks him over to Locke, who also has a gun on him. Suddenly we hear an arrow whistle through the air, and the... the and the goon arches his back, slumps over, dead, an arrow sticking out of his back. Bond quickly kicks away Locke's gun, and Locke speeds off. Columbo's men emerge from the water. How did they shoot the arrow? I mean, we didn't see anyone behind the goon in the water. Did they shoot from underwater? Is it a magic arrow like Yandu's in Guardians of the Galaxy? Bond picks up his gun and runs up to Liesel. She's dead. He tells her goodbye, and the men approach. Bond notices that they have a white dove imprinted on their wetsuits. Bond's about to ask a question when he's knocked out. Aboard a boat, Bond awakens and is taken into Columbo's office. Columbo asks Bond what he should do with him and plays part of the tape while he snacks on pistachios. He stops after the recording of Bond, says, tell me where he is, and Columbo adds, I'm right here, James Bond of the British Secret Service. He adds that it's Christodos you want, not him, and that Christodos was talking about himself. That he's the one with connections, that Locke works for Christodos, not him. He admits he smuggles. He smuggles gold, diamonds, uh, not so subtle hints there to previous films, as well as cigarettes and pistachios, but no heroin. 
Why the need to smuggle pistachios? I mean, I can see cigarettes. Certain ones are too strong and therefore banned in certain countries. But pistachios? Where would they be illegal that you would need to smuggle them? Come on, Colombo, be honest. That's just a flimsy excuse as to, as to why you have a warehouse full of pistachios when you're clearly obsessed with them. He invites Bond to sit down and Bond complies. Colombo adds that Cristado smuggles heroin that when he's not too busy working with the Russians against their countries. Bond says that Christodos was awarded the King's Medal. Colombo agrees, but a lot of men died for that to happen, and all the while Christodos was working as a double agent during the war. He says he would laugh if his heart wasn't so heavy for the, his loss of his lethal. Bond asks what Christodos stands to gain. Colombo says Christodos wants him out of the way so he could get a British Secret Service agent to do his dirty work for him. Colombo adds that the UK may even award him another medal. Bond asks why he should believe him. Colombo says he'll prove it to him tonight. They'll go together to Christodos' warehouse in Albania. It'll be fun! Bond says that if he doesn't report in tomorrow, that not only the British government, but the entire Greek police force will be beating down his door. Colombo pours him a drink and says that by tomorrow, we will be good friends. Bond declines the drink. Bond, are you feeling okay? Says he'll wait for tomorrow. Colombo sets the drink down and picks up Bond's gun, aiming at him before he hands it to him. I always hate this move in the movies. Why would anyone do that? It's just dumb and just used to create a false sense of suspense. You know, why would you point the gun at him and then the seconds later hand it to him? Exact, and it's just for that exact reason, just to kind of, you're trying to throw the audience off and it, it never works. I would actually love to see a scene where the gun accidentally goes off. Oh, I was just kidding. I was going to hand it to him. So anyway, Colombo adds that he's a good judge of character and that Bond has what the Greeks call thrasos, guts, says smack in his belly. Bond says, so do you. Colombo smiles and hands Bond the drink. So Bond and Colombo take a boat and dock alongside Christodos' smuggling boat. They're not stealthy at all and act like pirates trying to commandeer a ship. A uh, shootout breaks out with men falling left and right. Bond saves Colombo. Colombo saves Bond. They almost shoot each other. Uh, Locke is aboard the boat and tries to escape. Down in the hold, the shootout continues. Bond and Colombo sneak around large drums. Bond's opens a crate filled with grenades. He spots a diving suit that would make James Cameron giddy like a schoolgirl. Bond says it's a JIM diving equipment uh, for salvage work of up to 300 feet. They continue onward and stop at a drum with bullet holes. Colombo takes some pistachio shells and tosses them on the floor. Bond runs his finger near the holes and licks it. God, Bond, you don't know where that's been. Bond says it's raw opium. Colombo says it's an old smuggler's trick and that Cristatos knows them all. Locke and his men try to sneak up on them, but one of the idiot's goons steps on the pistachio shells, uh, creating an ear-splitting crack. Colombo, Bond, and the men shoot the opium drums ropes and push them on top of the goons. A couple get run over, and another drum hits a balcony, which knocks out a couple more men. Uh, more shots are fired, and Bond orders Colombo to get his men out of there. Before they sneak out, they toss a couple of grenades and blow the snot out of the ship. Locke escapes and heads after Bond down a narrow tunnel. Bond dives just as Locke passes. Bond runs and hits a cliff. Locke goes to run him over, and Bond dodges again, shooting Locke in the shoulder. Locke loses control of his Mercedes and comes to a stop, the driver's side dangling off a cliff. Bond walks up to the car as Locke reaches out his hand for assistance. Bond says he believe he left this with Ferrara, tossing the white dove pin into the car. Bond then kicks the car, nudging it off the edge. It crashes down the cliff in spectacular fashion, killing Locke. 
Now, it should be pointed out that Moore actually was originally against this scene as he felt his bond wouldn't actually do something so cold. But with some convincing, he decided it was the right thing to do. I mean, he has a license to kill, and you know, you got to use it. So Bond and Columbo look down at the crash car and Bond's he had no head for heights. Oh, why, Bond? Why? Why did you have to ruin that awesome moment? We then cut to underwater where Melina is vacuuming the seabed. Bond is there and he swims toward her. She takes her oxygen tank off and surfaces with Bond. Aboard the boat, they try to determine where the St. George's sank. Bond explains her parents were killed so they couldn't find it. While they talk, a macaw keeps repeating them. Melina says his name is Max. Bond asks if her father kept a logbook. Melina finds it. Bond says it's written in code. Melina says she could decipher it. She reads that he made two surveys in Neptune, their two-man submarine. She reads on, saying that he found a diving bell there pointed at a spot on the charts. Bond concludes it's for oil exploration, and that must mean Cristados. Wow, that's a pretty broad assumption there. She further reads that a few days later, he found a wreck in the same area. Bond asks what else it says. She says that's it. It's his last entry written on the day he was killed. Bond says they would need a lot of diving equipment to search, and Melina asks that she has all the necessary equipment on board. Bond says the less that no the better. Lena says she'll give her crew shore leave. We next see Bond and Melina in the Neptune sub. They make their way down to the same spot written in Mr. Havelock's logbook. They approach a sunken ship. Passing by, they see it's the St. George's. They stop. Bond concludes that at 584 feet and the right mixture of oxygen and helium, they would have eight minutes to find the ATAC, so they better work fast. They climb into their deep-sea scuba suits and head out. Aboard another boat, a signal is pinged. The radar operator looks over at Christados and says they have visitors. How, how did they know where to look? The only person I knew about it was Mr. Havelock. And they murdered him, and his blog book was written in code, so it's not like they would have been able to sneak in there and get it and understand it or anything. So Bond and Melina walk into the sunken ship. Bond says to only speak when necessary to save oxygen. So they enter a room, and Bond finds the ATAC, noticing that the explosive charge wasn't set to go off. He reads aloud the instructions and talks the entire time, giving a play-by-play -play on what he's doing. What was that about only speaking when necessary to save oxygen, Bond? We then see someone floating towards him. You can even hear a small bit of the Jaws theme playing with the score. Bond is able to detach the ATAC when the door bursts open. A man in the gym suit we saw at Christodos' makes his way towards him. Wait a minute. Bond says they're at 584 feet, but Bond says that that suit can only be used up to 300 feet. So maybe Bond didn't, doesn't know everything? So anyway, uh, he slowly hits Melina, knocking her down. Very nice. She's got the reflexes of a corpse. So the goon in the gym uses his pincer hands on Melina's oxygen tube, severing it. He then grabs for the ATAC. Bond grabs the magnetic detonator and attaches it to the helmet of the gym. While the guy tries to find it and knock it off, she can't because his arms are like all bulky and everything like that. Uh, Bond and Melina try to escape. The goon attacks them and Bond gets pinned under some rubble but manages to get away just as the timer explodes, blowing up the goon. Bond and Melina make their way back into the sub. Once they depressurize, they take off their helmets. Bond prepares to take off. Who knew that navigating the wet Nelly made him an expert in submarine driving? Suddenly, a one-man sub appears and attacks their sub. He manages to cut some wiring, then latches himself onto their front rudder. He takes a drill and starts drilling into the porthole. Bond slams the sub into gear, pushing the goon. The goon 
desperately tries to give it more power, but it's no match for the larger sub. Uh, Bond pushes him into the hole of the St. George's where the little sub gets stuck. As Bond pulls away, the mechanical arm uh, that's holding on to the rudder gets ripped off. Uh, Bond navigates past some Greek columns and bumps into them. Lena tells him to be careful as if they're 5,000 years old. <laughs> the look she gives him is like, you have no respect for ancient artifacts. Yeah, I'm just trying to save our asses here. So Bond and Melina are able to raise the sub and climb back aboard. They're not alone, however. Christados is there with Kriegler and his men are, are there waiting for them. Christados thanks him for saving him the trouble of having to disarm it and takes the attack from him. Melina asks where her men are, and Christados says that she will soon be joining them. Bond requests that he let Melina go, but Christados declines. They head into the cabin, and the goon holding the ATAC swipes everything off the desk to set this small feist down. What an asshole! Was that really necessary? The goon stares at it. <laughs> After he sets it down, the goon stares at it like he expects it to dance or something. Sorry, goon, we're, we're going to need Mood Slime and Jackie Wilson for that to happen. So Christados and Kriegler enter. Kriegler says that he will take the ATAC and return with the money. Christados scoffs and says that the, that's the voice of the KGB. He adds that the agreement was to meet at a place that he designated. He adds that he will hand it over after he gets paid. Kriegler asks where they're going. Christados says St. Cyril's. Bond and Melina find themselves lashed together by a long rope. Christados approaches them and suggests they cover up Bond's cut as they don't want blood in the water yet. Melina calls him a murderer, but Christados ignores her and says she has shot her last bolt. Christados takes off on his yacht, dragging them, or keel-hauling them, from behind. Now, this sequence was originally in the Live and Let Die novel, and it was intended to be put in that film, but it was removed, and then they reused it here. They brush past Coral and go through a reef before resurfacing. Christados tells them to turn around and go again. Did you run out of space in that large tank there? So they do it again as Bond comes up with an idea. He tells Melina to hold her breath. On the third go-around, Bond and Melina swim quickly underwater where they wrap the rope around a large rock. They hold on as the boat stops moving. The driver gives it more gas, tightening the rope, but it doesn't budge. He gives it more gas, and the rope snaps. The buoy attached to the rope comes flying out of the water and knocks a goon into the drink. Sharks devour that dude. Christados casually tells them to leave him. Bond and Melina surface, and Christados orders that they run them down. Melina tells Bond to follow her, and they swim underwater. They head to the oxygen tank that Melina left behind. Hey, a pre-planned deus ex machina. Nice! They share the oxygen while Christados circles around. He thinks the sharks have them, and they leave. Ah, assumptions. A villain's greatest weakness. So back aboard the boat, Melina and Bond are drying off, whining because they'll never get the ATAC or Christados now when Max Bird's on ATAC to St. Cheryl's! ATAC to St. Cheryl's! My, how convenient. So we then cut to Bond walking through a Greek wedding ceremony. He heads into a church and enters a confessional. He kneels down and says, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Kyo disguised as a bearded priest replies, But that's putting it mildly, 007. As he takes off the beard. Ah, <laughs> oh, you gotta love Q. But seriously, why was he keeping it on while he was in there? How long has he been in there? Q mentions that the search turned up... Hundreds of St. Cyril's in Greece, and heaven only knows where Christodos and the ATAC are. Bond says he knows who to contact about this. <laughs> what, why make the trip? MI6 made Q come all the way to Greece just to feed Bond some facts that could have been given to him over the phone? 
I'm, I'm sure Q didn't mind. It's technically a free vacation on the company dime. So we then see monks walking by in a wooded countryside. It's Columbo, Bond, and Molina. Uh, Columbo shows them St. Cyril's, a monastery that was used to hide from the Germans during World War II. He scoffs at only Christados would choose a monastery to hide. Bond makes his long, rocky ascent up the cliffside. Ironically, Roger Moore actually had a terrible fear of heights, so all of his close-ups, of course, were filmed in studio. Columbo worries that he should have brought more men, but Molina tries to reassure him that if all they need. In the monastery, Bibi is doing her exercises, but stops mid-count, much to Miss Brink's dismay. She tells Bibi to do more, but Bibi says this is the pits, and that she should be skating in Oslo or Innsbruck, and wants to know why they're in this creepy place. Cristados enters and says they have a plan change of plans, and they're going to live in Cuba for a few months. Bibi scoffs at that idea. Cristados says so she can train privately. Bibi gets on a trampoline and says she wants the gold medal. Cristado says we all want that. Bibi retorts that she knows what he wants and he's too old for her. She says she's splitting. Cristados blames Miss Brink, saying that she has poisoned Bibi against him. Cristado says he'll deal with her the same way he deals with all those that betray him. Such a strange arc. I mean, it went from them like, you know, oh, Uncle Ari, I love you and all this. And then all of a sudden she's like, you want it, you want me, but you can't have me. I'm out of here. Sort of thing. It's something. Something's missing from in between here. So back on the cliffside, Bond continues his ascent as Columbo and his men watch in suspense. Bond slips and some rocks fall, alerting a sentry guard. He checks it out, but only sees birds. Bond reaches for a rock and is startled by another bird nearly falling. Bond makes his way to the top where he's met with the boot of a goon. Bond falls back and one of his carabiners comes loose. Bond manages to stop falling and dangles there, continuing his ascent again. The goon sees the spikes and knocks it out, causing Bond to fall a bit more. He does it with another. The man secures a rope and leans over, trying to knock out the final one, when Bond manages to climb up, and upon which he grabs a knife from his belt and throws it into the goon's chest. The goon falls. Molino and Columbo see the body fall, thinking it's Bond, until they actually see it up close. Bond makes his way to the top and enters a shed where he lowers the basket for Columbo and Molino to get up in. A goon, three, two, one. A goon hears the commotion and investigates. He sees them riding in the basket and goes to shoot him when Molina shoots him with the bolt. In the monastery, Bibi and Miss Brink prepare to leave. Christados is upset that the general is late. We then see a helicopter approaching with General Gogol inside. Bond and company make their way into the monastery. They encounter Miss Brink, who agrees to help them. They make their way into a room where goons are sleeping. The night shift, I guess? One goon, hiding behind a curtain, draws a gun, but Melina stops him. Bibi asks Christados where Miss Brink is, and Christados demands she go back to her room. Bibi tells Christados to go to hell, and he smacks her across the face, knocking her onto a bed. Suddenly, Bond and Columbo's cover is blown as Bond takes on random henchmen. Columbo and Kriegler get into it, and Kriegler gets one up uh, on Columbo. Bond and the goon fly through a stained glass window and land on a bed. Kriegler enters and attacks Bond. They trade punches, and Kriegler rips a stone out of the wall. Dude, this guy is definitely on steroids. And is about to throw it at Bond when Bond grabs a lamp. Guess what it is? Some long pole thing with a sharp end. And shoves Kriegler out the window. I think it was... More like a candlestick, one of those like really long candlesticks, almost like the like a floor lamp, but uh, for candles. Yeah, so. so he grabs it and he shoves Kriegler out the window where he falls to his doom. Uh, Columbo 
ask Christados. Three, two, one. Columbo attacks Christados as the chopper lands and Christados is trying to leave. Uh, Columbo trips him up and Christados drops the A-tank. Bond manages to get it. Melina has Christados cornered and is ready to shoot him. Bond tells her not to do it, that they'll turn him into the Greek authorities. Melina demands that he get out of her way. Bond complies, but she said she should be prepared to dig those two graves. Suddenly a knife gets thrown at Christados' back, thrown by Columbo. Christados slumps over, dead. General Gogol approaches Bond and holds out his hand for the attack. But like, yeah, yeah, right, General. Like, Britain's top agent will just hand over something as important as that. So Bond walks up to Gogol and tosses the attack off the cliff. It lands, smashing to bits. Gogol looks at Bond and says, That's detente, comrade. You don't have it. I don't have it. Gogol laughs and bids Bond goodbye, taking off in the helicopter. Okay, bye. Bond sees BB and Miss Brink tending to Columbo's wounds. Bond says it looks like BB has found a new sponsor. Back at MI6, Q is patching through a special phone call to Bond. Bond and Lena are making out aboard the boat when Bond gets a call on his watch. Lena says she fancies a moonlight swim and Bond takes off his watch, placing it next to Max. Q keeps calling Bond's name and Max eventually repeats. They think it's him, because you know how we're always saying that Bond talks like a macaw all the time. And they patch Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher through. Uh, not actually Mar Miss Thatcher, but a very, very well done impersonator. Uh, the Prime Minister, she thanks Bond for his service and that she's glad the mission was a success. In a weird but funny moment while she's talking about wanting to meet him, her husband Dennis enters, has a goofy look on his face and tries to sneak something from a bowl, but gets his hand slapped away. It's almost like something out of like an SNL skit or something. She asks if there's anything she could do for him, and Max replies, Give us a kiss. The uh, Prime Minister laughs and blushes, Oh, Bond, really? M and Q brush it off as interference. M disconnects the line and calls Q an idiot. <laughs> How is it his fault? Q tries reaching Bond again, and Max starts laughing like crazy. M takes over and asks if he's gone mad. Max takes the watch and drops in the water, leading to the rolling of the credits. And that was for Now, For Your Eyes Only opened on June 24th, 1981 at the Odeon Leicester Square in London. Set an all-time opening day record for any film at any cinema in the UK with a gross of £14,998. The film opened in the US on June 26th in approximately 1,100 cinemas. It opened at number three in the box office, losing out to Superman 2 in its second week at number one, and Cannonball Run, which also starred Roger Moore. It did, however, beat out the Ivan Reitman comedy Stripes, starring Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, as well as the comedy The Great Muppet Caper. Uh, it wouldn't reach the number one spot during its run, but it would gross a total of $54.8 million in the U.S. and Canada, and became the seventh highest grossing film in that region in 1981. The film would go on to make a total of $195.3 million worldwide. Now, it should be noted that this would be the last film to be solely released by United Artists as they were sold to MGM, and upon the merger, all future entries would be released under MGM UA Distribution Company. Now, reviews once again were mixed. Uh, I really enjoyed this film. In fact, uh, the more I see it, the more I enjoy it. Uh, when I first saw it, I gave it right around three stars. I've actually bumped it up to about three and a half stars now. It's really grown on me. This is a slightly grittier take on Bond with Moore gave it a really fine performance, even considering his age. I mean, you don't even think about his age when you really see this movie. 
It's got rich characters, a good villain. Uh, the supporting cast is incredible. Um, there's there it it does kind of lag in some parts. Uh, it's a little bit slow. I think the action sequences are fantastic. Um, my one complaint would be Carol Bouquet. She kind of gives a rather one note performance as Melina. She doesn't really, you know, she's trying to play it serious and she's trying to play it, you know, where she's, you know, like got a one track mind of vendetta to avenge her parents' death. But it's just, I mean, it's just stone faced almost the whole time. And, and it, it's really distracting. Uh, Bill Conti's score is among the best, not just of the franchise, but of like, of, scores of the 80s he really fantastic now derek malcolm of the guardian disliked the film stating it was too long and that it's pretty boring between the stunts although he admitted that the stunts were of high quality he added that bond inhabits a fantasy land of more or less bloodless violence groinless sex and naivete masked as superior sophistication and called more a nicely lubricated daze He's also puzzled as to why the series has lasted so long and so strong on people's affections. Uh, David Robinson of the Times complained that the dramatic bits between the set pieces don't count for much. He did, however, point out that the stunts and its crews were better than ever in this one. Uh, a critic for Time Out said that it had no plot and poor dialogue, and Moore really is old enough to be the uncle of those girls. Fair enough. Gary Arnold of the Washington Post thought the film was undeniably easy on the eyes and added maybe too easy to prevent the mind from wandering and the lids from drooping. Uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times, who previously stated that Moonraker was the second best next to Goldfinger, said of this film, it's not the best of the series by a long shot, although he did say the film is slick entertainment. Jack Kroll of Newsweek said it's an anthology of action episodes held together by the thinnest of plot lines, although he did also comment on the set pieces, calling them terrific in their exhilarating absurd energy. However, Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune did a very exciting film with some of the best chasings and that the villains are very credible and not cartoony-like in the last few Bond pictures. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times also gave it a positive review stating that while it's not as good as the classic Bond pictures like Dr. No and From Russia With Love, it's still enjoyable. Although he did add that he's seen all these ingredients before, such as the ski chases and the underwater sequences, and that's starting to feel repetitive. Uh, he further added that it's a competent James Bond thriller, well-crafted, and a respectable product of the 007 production line, but it's no more than that. Now, for their TV review show sneak previews, both Siskel and Ebert would give the film two yes votes, which is equivalent to what would later become their signature two thumbs up. Film critic Lettern Malton gave it three stars, stating that after years of space-age gadgetry, cartoon villains, female mannequins, and giants with steel teeth comes this one-shot return to the old days of Ian Fleming minimalism. He adds that no other James Bond film has provoked so much debate among 007 fans and urges you to judge for yourself, stating that the spectacular chases and the stunt work are undeniably exciting. Now let's take a look at the differences between the novel and the film. As I mentioned before, the title comes from the Fleming Bond novel that consists of several short stories. The film borrows the plot from two of those short stories, For Your Eyes Only and Rosico. In the For Your Eyes Only shorts, uh, the Havelocks are in Jamaica when they are murdered, whereas they are near Greece in the film. Uh, the manner in which they are killed and the reason why are also changed for the movie. In the story, uh, they are murdered by two Cuban hitmen with silenced pistols while they're out for a walk. In the film, they're on a boat 
when a Greek pilot who earlier dropped their daughter off circles around and shoots and kills them with a machine gun mounted to the bottom of the plane. Likewise, in the novel, they are murdered because they refuse to sell their estate to Er von Hammerstein, a former Gestapo officer who is chief of counterintelligence for the Cuban Secret Service. In the movie, it's because they were secretly working with British intelligence and trying to recover the wreck of the St. George's. Also, in the, in the For Your Eyes Only short, the villain, as just mentioned, is Er von Hammerstein. This character was omitted for the movie in favor of the villain in the short story, Rosico. Uh, in For Your Eyes Only, the Havelock's daughter's name is Judy. In the film, they changed it to Melina. Uh, in the short story, Judy is experienced with a bow and arrow and uses that to kill von Hammerstein. In the movie, her weapon of choice was upgraded to a crossbow. Uh, von Hammerstein's death in the climax of the short story is actually set in Vermont at von Hammerstein's estate near Echo Lake. Uh, in the film, the climax takes place in Meteora, Greece at a monastery. Also, the mission carries out in the short story is a personal vendetta Bond is doing at the request of M as the Havelocks were good friends of M's. Uh, this was omitted from the film, um, mainly due to the absence of M, but the plot element was somewhat revisited in 1999's The World Is Not Enough. Uh, the Reciko portion is barely changed. Uh, characters are added, including the assassin Emil Locke and figure skater B.B. Dahl. Uh, only other notable change, really, is the drug smuggling in the book is often listed as narcotics. In the movie, it was reduced to simply uh, they were smuggling raw opium for heroin. Now, in the short story, Christados is killed in the warehouse after attempting to plant explosives. Uh, in the film, it's Columbo's men that plant the explosives to divert the shipment, and Christados is killed at a monastery in Greece. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Smithflix Experience. Uh, once more, feel free to reach out to me with any comments at smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. Flix is F-L-I-X, in case, uh, just like you see on the uh, uh, my title there. So, so Smithflix, F-L-I-X, smithflixpodcast at gmail.com. So I'll be happy to hear from you. Uh, reach out to me. I'll read, like I said, I'll read your responses on the next episode. Uh, you can also check us out on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. But don't worry, though. James Bond will return in Octopussy. Take care, everyone.